Happy New Year! Holidays are over? What the heck just happened? On this episode, we're digging into the past holiday shopping season, and we're going to go from the warehouse to the store to the consumer, and sometimes the consumer returns it back to the store again. Now, that never happens to me because I always give the perfect gifts. Yeah, right. Ha! Hey, tone down there, buddy. You're listening to a special crossover episode of Where We Buy and JLL Chicago Industrial Real Time. That's right, guys. My name is James Cook. I research retail and real estate for JLL. As you all know, Where We Buy is the show where we talk with retail experts. And today I am here with Chad Book and George Coutreau. Chad and George host Chicago Industrial Real Time, which is Chicago's industrial research podcast. Is that how you guys would say it? Oh, that is correct. All right. So this is a very special episode. This is like, I don't know, like when Batman and Superman are in the same uh, in the same comic book together or something like that. Um, so uh, let's uh, let's recover from the holiday hangover. Do you guys have a holiday hangover this year? Gained a couple pounds, but all good. All right. Okay. So let's start it. Um, We're talking about the entire holiday journey, and we're going to start in the warehouse where the goods come way before they get to the consumer. So let's talk about how they staff warehouses. I'm assuming that during the holiday season, they have to hire a lot more people in warehouses. Yeah, absolutely. The peak seasonal spike for warehouse labor is a huge issue for for pretty much everybody. Obviously, unemployment is pretty low, and uh, especially with with warehouses operating uh, in exurban areas far outside from population centers, some of those folks are having a little bit of a harder time and using shuttle buses or even uh, maybe trying to lease some extra parking down the road from their neighbor to to pack some extra people. So, uh, you know, temporary employment uh, will grow to about more than 3.2 million people uh, by 2025, which is an increase of nearly 254,000, which is according to MC, which is a, a database that we subscribe to. And let's take a, b- a step back, James. These goods are coming from overseas starting in July. July, August is peak season for holiday goods to be brought to the retailers' warehouses to be ready for that shopping season. So you have that huge surge in both rail lifts and then trucks on the roads from that time period because they are storing these goods for the holiday season. Gotcha. And when you say rail lifts, is that like a rail carload of stuff? They're lifting a container, and typically the containers coming overseas are their 20 or 40-foot boxes. Sometimes they'll take those containers and repack them. So that's a other, so that's t- unloading from a 20 or 40-foot box and repacking them into a 53-foot box, which is you know, the standard U.S. trailer size on the highways today. So does everything that we buy in the store, it all comes in containers pretty much? Is that right? Uh, If it's made overseas, it is. Correct. And most stuff is probably made overseas, I would imagine. With the exception of some some high-value electronics and, and, uh, you know, apparel, which is maybe air cargoed in to... But for the most part, we're talking about a little bit slower-moving stuff that's going uh, ocean freight and intermodal. But, But not everything is made overseas. There's still a lot of goods that are produced... Locally, it's just the biggest driver is from overseas. And so how tough is it, you know, we need all this extra labor during the holidays. How tough is it 
to get that labor? I mean, it's t- it's a tight market out there, right? Sure, everybody's competing for the, that same workforce. So whether that's the postal service, it's the parcel companies, uh, manufacturers, the on-demand drivers, you know, three PLs. Um, these guys are all having challenges, but. In, in some cases, like think of the community of DeKalb in, in Illinois. They use pull students from Northern Illinois University around the holidays. Um, it's a great peak, flexible workforce. Some of those kids are working at UPS over the holidays, uh, delivering packages. Everybody's busy, but you know, hey, maybe some of those folks are getting uh, full time jobs come January. But the huge, the huge issue is it's a price war. So everybody who needs labor, labor prices have gone up. Uh, for people that work in a warehouse and you're hearing the $15 mark is now the number that you're paying a warehouse employee. And most of these companies are not even trying to hire themselves. They're looking at the third party uh, folks to help them solve their problems. So they're hiring a third party vendor who, who can find these people for them and then to deal with it. So it's it's all about outsourcing, and you and you just don't want to deal with it. And you mentioned three PL third party logistic. I mean, that's as outsourced as it gets, right? That's you're paying somebody else to handle it all. How like how popular is that three PL thing? Yeah, sure. Three PLs are really a great solution for flexible warehouse solutions and, and even overflow and seasonal spikes. Um, if companies are not already using a three PL, um, so this allows companies to really focus on their primary business of running those stores and and kind of growing their brand and and putting out new products. So even just looking at our national uh, JLL stats, three PLs are by and far one of the top industries leasing industrial space around the country. Really? Okay, interesting. And you. That's going to keep growing. Absolutely. Uh, one, the one caveat is that typically a 3PL is tied to the contract with the person they're warehousing with. So you traditionally see them signing shorter term leases than someone who warehouses it on their own. Uh, you know, a retailer who says, I don't need a third party. I'm going to do it on my own. If they're going to lease a facility, you're probably going to see a 10-year lease or more out of them. Versus a 3PL, that lease is going to be anywhere between three and five years, five really being the upper end for them because, again, it's tied to contracts and they don't want to occupy vacancy because they got a low overhead and they got to keep it that way. That's interesting. So in the retail world, over the past decade, lease lengths have gotten shorter and shorter. And is that also true in industrial? Just for that segment, but that's always been the case for the 3PL world. Okay. Okay. So that's a little that's a little different. All right. Well... What else, from the industrial standpoint, what else do happens during the holiday season? Are there other industries that feel the impacts? Sure. Certainly the packaging sector, um, the folks that are leasing pallets, selling uh, you know, cardboard, corrugated, the dunage groups like Uline and Westrock. I mean, these guys are really busy in the summer building that inventory and getting it out. So uh, by October, November, it's ready to... Uh, you know, hit the stores and things like that. Other companies in the transportation space are leasing extra tractors and trailers to have those staged at the warehouse ready to go. Um, and then the railroads, they need to make sure that they have uh, enough chassis and, and extra containers at the, uh, the big rail intermodal terminals just to make sure we don't have another chassis shortage and that, that folks have flexibility. With- I- I remember the day the worst chassis shorted. What's a chassis and what's a chassis? <laughs> the chassis is basically the frame and the eight wheels that a, a 20, a 40, or 53 foot shipping container would rest on, and that hooks up to the tractor. 
it's a, a separated part from the container. Okay. And so we had, there was a big chassis shortage and we need to avoid that in the future. Absolutely. We had had an imbalance. Well, we'll think about that. If, if you don't have a chassis to put a container on, the container stays in the yard and no one wins. It's, it's goods that are not being brought to the warehouse and then therefore don't get to the consumer. Well, I think it's so interesting too that from the consumer standpoint, people don't think about how it gets there by rail or by truck. What's your sense of like percentages? And I'm not looking for an exact number, but does most stuff come by truck or most by rail or what's the breakdown there? You know, it's over time, they've uh, learned the the rail and trucking industry have learned to work together. Okay. 20 years ago, that wasn't the case. They were fighting for the same book of business. Now they work in conjunction with each other where the majority of the the length of the travel length is going to be on rail. It's going to then dropped off in an intermodal yard where it's then going to be put on a tr- chassis and then be ta- taken to its final destination point, the warehouse. So I would say three quarters, one quarter in terms of total. So railroad's going to take three quarters of the journey. Truck's going to take the other 25. Now, there are warehouses that are right connected to the rail, like on the rail line, right? Oh, that is correct. There are some that have direct rail service. Uh, There's one big uh, user in our I-80 market uh, that has 2 million five-plus square foot facilities that have direct rail to the building. And uh, for your audience, their, their savings, a drayage cost. Drayage is the amount of money that a warehouser has to pay someone to take it, pick it up from the yard and bring it to their location. But because these folks are on the rail spur within this intermodal yard, their drayage cost is zero. You know, they're saving millions and millions of dollars in transportation costs because of that it's a holiday hangover so we've got some we got to talk about how holiday performs. let's say food coma okay food coma (laughs) i mean that's all part of the hangover right um so we don't have the final numbers um those won't come out for a little bit yet but uh, mastercard released some initial numbers and they said that holiday sales increased 3.4 percent over last year which is a strong number that is like continued solid growth how much of that do you think was online? You got a guess? Well, with everything growing, 20%, 30%? It was a little bit lower. It was a little bit lower. Actually, only 14.6% of that was online. Interesting. Which is, um, I mean, it's a lot. Um, but, I mean, you know, you talk to people and half the people you talk to say, well, I'm going to... I'm doing all my holiday shopping online this year. But it turns out most people are like me and you wait until the two, three days before Christmas and you go to two or three stores and you kill it all in in one in one hit. So um, but that does bring me to a question about e-commerce. So e-commerce is huge. It is growing like crazy. Are warehouses different for online sales than they are for traditional stores? Yeah, absolutely. They are. That's a yes or no question. Okay. All right. It's it's complicated. They're usually bigger. They're taller. We're talking 40 clear and above. Highly automated. There's usually some mezzanine in there. Um, Just a lot more technology inside that facility, more loading docks, and and more parking. Um, Additionally, with the largest e-commerce monster out there now, uh, they're they're building unique facilities. Chad mentioned the first one, and that those are the 
the million-plus square footers where they have all the automation in. And then as they get closer to the urban areas, they shrink those pods down. They don't go multi-story, um, and they bring them down to one story, but these are last-mile goods, so it's really more throughput operation where they don't need – they may be more, more shallow bay than big, big bay distribution center because it's the last mile so you don't need to be in a million square foot or they might be in 50,000 square feet or maybe 200,000 square feet because that those goods that get to there are going to the end user. And when you say shallow bay versus big bay, is that the size of the truck it can handle? No, it's actually the size of the columns in a building. So to hold the roof up of the building, you have columns and shallow bay means it's going to be a smaller facility because your columns are going to be closer together. Gotcha. I knew that. I was just testing you. And you passed. Good job, Thanks, George. James. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, we had the goods. They were made either domestically or overseas. They were shipped to customers who ordered them online or bought in stores. They bought them. Maybe some people got an ugly sweater they didn't like. Or... Yeah, James, I'm stripping the back. <laughs> so retailers love that. They love returns. Uh, not really. Uh, so how do... From a logistics standpoint, how do retailers handle returns? Is it the same warehouses? Well, returns are kind of a big elephant in the room that everybody's kind of struggling with. It's a big supply chain cost. All the parcel shippers get through the big pre-Christmas spike, but they know they're not out of the woods yet because they're still going to see a large volume come back through the network. Um, some online retailers don't even want to take anything back. They say, keep it or unfortunately throw it away because of the cost of tracking it, the accounting, the returns, unboxing and, and put away can sometimes be worth more than a low margin item itself. And, and Chad, I, I heard the number to be like one and a half times the cost of the goods. So that's therefore no one really wants to take these back. I'm surprised it hasn't sprung up an industry for take backs where they then just sell them online really cheaply because you've got a lot of these firms that do it as a local thing, but we've never seen anything where they're taking goods from the retailers who don't want to deal with them anymore. Yeah, I know that, like, I bought stuff online before, and, you know, they'll send me the wrong thing, and I'm like, well, where should I mail it back to you? And they say, yeah, you know, it's just keep it. That doesn't always happen, but, you know, with more inexpensive goods, you definitely see that. So what's the future for warehousing, um, are they getting just are they just getting bigger and bigger, and with higher and higher ceilings, or where is that going? Just to hold more goods? They're not always necessarily getting bigger and bigger. Every company has a different strategy. You may have two or three really big ones, kind of on the coast and in the middle of the country, and other folks may have a, a larger network of smaller facilities in in more states. So it's it's a it's a hard one to answer. But I okay. think I think though the trend though going forward is the rest of the world is trying to keep up with e-commerce. Everybody's looking to make your experience enjoyable more quicker. You know now e-commerce is offering same day delivery on certain items, and you see the rest of that world try to do that. In order to do that, you're now creating more touches to the goods. So you're going to go from the million square footer to maybe a 500,000 square footer that's a little bit closer in. And then you're going to have an in-urban 100 to 200,000 square foot last mile facility will then take it the rest of the way. And that's where we're seeing a lot of developers 
searching for land sites in infill locations of highly populated areas because they're trying to get ready for that demand that's coming. All right. Well, it's been very fascinating talking with you guys today. And uh, that's about it for the... Well, 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 James, uh, we have a couple questions for you. It's not fair that you ask us all these questions. We don't get to return the favor. What? Uh, this is coming out of nowhere, George. <laughs> Chad and I have a couple for you. Um, okay. And remember, uh, this is recapping our episode... From two years ago. Yeah, I, I didn't mention this. This is a return uh, performance. We did a, a joint episode two years ago. So you're you're bringing back uh, the topics that we talked about before? Oh, that is correct. Uh, the first one I have is, <clears throat> excuse me, you mentioned uh, that malls were here to stay, that the mall was not dead, except for maybe in tertiary markets. Is that still holding true today? Yeah, malls are definitely here to stay. I would say the thing, though, is that we need less of them. They're more focused on experience. Um, you're not necessarily just going there to buy goods. You're going there to be entertained. Our newest, biggest mall uh, that is opening now uh, is called American Dream uh, outside of um, uh, New York City. Uh, and it is huge. It's going to be the biggest mall. I forget how many millions of square feet it is. I should know that. Um, but it is about 50% food and entertainment. Now, it's tons of retail, but they have tons of, you know, they've got an indoor ski slope, um, and it's uh, in nor northern New Jersey. So uh, all of the malls are figuring out ways to create an experience. The ones that aren't probably are going to start going away. So it's not dead, but it's different. With that experience, is there something, is there one or two pieces that they're adding to the mall to create that? Or does each mall have its own unique thing that they're trying to emphasize to give you that experience? I mean, there's, it's a lot of entertainment um, and a lot of food. So a lot of places are adding in new food halls, which is really tough to do because, you know, food halls aren't like food courts where you bring in some national chains. So you've got to find these local, exciting brands. Um, and you're working with a lot of, oftentimes you're working with a lot of small local operators to make that work, they're a headache to manage. Um, so a lot of times they'll make food courts that have that food hall feel. Um, entertainment, all kinds of stuff. Um, have you guys heard of Kidzania? No. Okay, Kidzania, and it's actually coming soon. I forget which mall it is, but it's here in Chicago. I should know that again. So Kidzania, uh, which is a concept originally out of Mexico, but it's all around the world. First location opening up here in the in U.S. in Chicago. It's a role-playing experience for kids. So it's an entire indoor city where the kids get dropped off, and for three hours they each are assigned a different job in this city. And so one person, one kid might be a doctor, and they go off and learn. I don't know. They you know they learn how to be a doctor and another kid is is like a news anchor and they'll go record tv shows and and it's all this really high-end role-playing like kids will be um airline pilots what a great concept and they'll be like flight simulators and so the idea is those are part of malls so what i've heard is these are people go back again and again and their kids can do different stuff every time they go first time parents go they're going to sit around and watch the kids play and enjoy it. Next time parents go, they're like, oh, I don't want to watch this again. Now they're going to go and walk around the rest of the mall and shop for a few hours while the kids are experiencing it. That, that is amazing. Yeah. So we'll have to, we'll have to go back and uh, I'll be a doctor 
and uh, I'll operate on you, George. I don't know if I mean, we might be a little too old. I don't know if they're gonna let us in there. Uh, yeah. You also said that we were over retailed, which meant you thought we had too many retail centers around the country. Have we thinned the herd, or is that still true? Yeah, so this is interesting. I I would say we've got too many malls. Um, There are some malls that are in their last days of being traditional malls. And a big part of that is they all depended on department store anchors and department stores just – some department stores are doing pretty well. But a lot of them, people have turned to the discounters like, uh, you know, a Target or a Walmart, and they're not going to your traditional department stores. And because of that, because malls have relied on those um, to drive traffic, um, those those guys are in trouble. So um, I think we've still got some more closures to come. But, you know, all the shopping centers that are around daily needs, you know, like grocery stores and you know, your open air centers, you know, that ha- are anchored by, you know, your targets and your best buys. I mean, those those guys are fine. They're here to stay. Yeah. Grocery anchored retail is here to stay. That was one of your predictions from 2017. And you're yeah. right on two years later. Absolutely. We've seen modest and I'm talking very small growth in grocery, online grocery delivery and like click click and collect groceries. So you order online and you pick up at the grocery store. We've seen some growth in that, but the vast majority of people are again, like me, probably like you guys, where you're like, oh, I gotta get dinner tonight. I'm not gonna order it online and wait for it to get delivered. I'm just gonna stop at my my Kroger or whatever on the way home and just pick it up. Isn't it amazing how they really have changed your your look and, and feel where you can pick up a roasted chicken, a large pizza, it's ready to go. So you, it's it's like fast food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it's, it's a lot home, of prepared food. But it's home cooked. Yeah. So you're getting a home cooked experience that you don't. If you're working ten hours a day, do you want to spend another hour in the kitchen making? Preparing, making, then cleaning up. That's a great point. So um, grocery stores aren't exactly the same as they were, say, 10 years ago. They've got a lot more prepared foods. They have a lot of more exotic foods. Like you think about the beer and wine selection in your typical... Talk about hangover. I know, right? In your typical small grocery store, it's amazing. You used to be able to get... You know, the exotic beer would be like a Heineken or something. And now they have beers from all over the country, all these microbreweries and stuff. So, yeah, they're, they're definitely appealing to, to a lot of people that way. Well, I think you've covered many of our 2017 <laughs> predictions. And you're, and you're largely right. I think – I don't know if that was just a fluke or if you have a crystal ball, but uh, you're, you're pretty spot on. It's interesting, our industry, it feels like everything's in flux, but it's kind of like a slow and steady change. You know, there's not anything dramatic going on. You're right, because I think you mentioned e-commerce sales were 9% two years ago, and they've grown 5%, right? Twenty. So that number that, that, that number that I quoted earlier was just around the holidays. Um, the overall retail sales are a little bit lower. I want to say they're at about 11% online right now, which is still pretty big. I mean, that's a big number. But at some point, that number is going to pl- that percentage is going to plateau. There's only so much I think that can be sold online. At you know, at some point, you know, people do continue to go to the physical store. And, and that brings us to another question, which I think you were talking about uh, back in 17 was. Some of the e-commerce or web-based companies 
We're starting to look at bricks and mortar to give people that experience in a store. So they're, they're not doing anything big like a department store would, but they're making small kiosks and allow you to experience to touch it in person, which then complements their e-commerce platform. Are you seeing more of that or more companies saying, yeah, I need to be in there? Because you mentioned there was a couple last time, but you didn't think there was going to be a big trend. Is that really exploding? I mean, it ha- and it's kind of the huge irony of our industry is that the brands, the online retailers that people said were going to destroy bricks and mortar are now bricks and mortar converts. And they're all opening up. Now, it's not like they're opening up, as you said, they're not opening up department stores, but they're opening up a lot of stores. And we did a, a big look at this a year and a half ago, and we counted all of the announced new store openings by digital native retailers. And we came up with 850 locations that they were planning on opening in the next five years. And that count is actually low because it's a few years old now. Well, let's take let's take this a step further. Those tradition, if, if those were traditional bricks and mortar retailers, what size would they would have been in the heyday? And what are they moving into now? So is there a big shrinkage? I mean, if you look at our industry, the office industry, <clears throat> And the size proportion has shrunk so much that you're, everybody's in cubes today. So you are compacting a lot more people in the same space, which then creates issues with air handling, bathrooms, and elevators if you're in a multi-story building because you now increased your traffic. With the retail side, they're shrinking their footprints but by how much from the traditional side of things. Yeah, I think – and that's a great point about office is that people are packed into – Uh, a lot less space than they they used to be. Um, In retail, it depends on, you know, what sector we're talking about. I mean, you know, Walmart and Target are still opening up super centers. Um, But these digital native brands, I mean, the biggest ones that I can think of are at most, the absolute biggest ones would be like 8,000 square feet, 10,000 square feet. And these are truly bricks and mortar. These aren't kiosks that are opening in a mall or an open area. Right. And they all do that too. Um, So a lot of them will partner with department stores. So Nordstrom and Macy's is actively partnering with a lot of these digital native brands and doing mini store and stores um, and testing them, you know, and people, that's a way they're trying to make department stores exciting again is by having these new brands. You go down Armitage Avenue in Lincoln Park and you see Warby Parker and Allbirds and Bonobos and these kind of clicks to bricks. And they're, they're high traffic, cool neighborhoods, but smaller footprint stores. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and to your point, where they want to be, a lot of them is in those cool neighborhoods. So it's not like a lot of these um, trendy clicks and bricks retailers are going to open up in, you know, the kinds of suburban locations. They do. Well, they're starting to. Like, uh, you know, um, Warby Parker is opening up so many locations now that they've opened up in every cool street. And now they're moving on to the Class A malls across the U.S. So a lot of them... They might not be on the cool street. They might not be in Wicker Park or whatever, but they're going to be in whatever the best mall in the city is. That's where they want to be. Well, Chad, I think we bombarded James with enough uh, rhetorical questions. I can't believe he we convinced him to come back. We didn't <laughs> scare him off. And sadly, he comes on the coldest day of the year. Oh, my gosh. It's, it was like about 10 degrees out there. Man. Up. Yeah. Right. It's brutal. 
Well, guys, thank you so much for joining me on uh, Where We Buy. Well, you know, I'm joining you on Chicago Industrial Real Time. Nice, James. (laughs) All right. And for our listeners out there, if you've got a topic you'd like us to tackle on this show, tell us about it. Leave a message on the Where We Buy hotline, and we'll use it in an upcoming show. Give us a call at 602-633-4061, and be sure to tell us your name and where you're calling from. And you can always subscribe to Where We Buy on the iPhone podcast app or on Spotify, or you can go to wherewebuy.show. And if you want to subscribe to Chicago Industrial Real Time, That's on all the same places, right? You guys are everywhere podcasts are. Exactly. All right. So just open up your podcast app and search for uh, Chicago Industrial Real Time and hit subscribe. Uh, If you want to see more retail research, you can go to us.jll.com forward slash retail. And can you do that for industrial too? Absolutely. All right. So us.jll.com forward slash industrial. Slash Chad Book. Oh, right, right, right. That's Chad's personal page uh, where he's got he's got a really nice um, motorcycle for sale. Uh, $1,500 or best offer. It's a Kawasaki. I think you guys should all check it out. Our theme music is Run in the Night by the Good Lords under Creative Commons license. Did you guys get anything good for Christmas? I got good, good, good gifts. Not an ugly sweater, but uh, you got a nice sweater. <laughs> okay, he got married. Did you know that? What? Yeah. Over Christmas, November. George, you get any good gifts? I did. Um, for it was a combination gift: birthday and Christmas. The boys got me tickets to the Green Bay game, so we drove up to Green Bay, the four of us, and watched the game. Close game. The Bears didn't win, but that was. I was just. I was happy to be with them. It was just like today. It was cold, but it was sun was out. First time in my life, I was, I was able to drink beer with all three boys because the youngest is now twenty one legally. So we had a we had a blast. That's awesome. A blast. My okay. Let me think about this. My un- unexpected gift was. Um, do you guys know what sous vide is? Have you heard of this? No, help me. It's like you cook meat in water, which sounds weird, but it's like it's like a tenderizer. Yeah. So it's so difficult to describe. You put your steak in a plastic sealed bag and put it in water and you put this device in it and then it slowly heats it up over 45 minutes to your exact specifications. It's like, I want it medium rare. And Seriously? It slowly cooks it up to that. Then you take it out and you sear it real fast. Best steak I've ever had. And I'd, I'd heard of these and I'd, I've been like, ah, I don't know if I want one. It was a gift. I love it. It's so cool. Makes a great steak. I'm a big fan. Well, we we just started last year brining pork chops. Oh, my kids love pork. Yeah, and you know, unless you have a a sauce that you can render with it, pork can be dry. Mm-hmm. But by putting it in a brine and doing it all day long, it comes out tender. You don't need to have that comp. And I don't even have to put a rub on there. I could use salt and pepper and 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 put it on the grill. And like, wow, huge difference in in texture. And it's not like needing a dry turkey. Well, if you're looking, uh, you can you can sous vide pork too. So if you're looking for a new way, I'm going to try that. I'll tell you. I'll I'll write it down so you know how to to spell it. <laughs> just email it to me. Jake, Text it to me. You know, let us know whenever you want to invite us over for dinner, and we'll be there, and right. we'll record another episode at your dining room table. Awesome. All right, that's a wrap.